0: We're in 1 Samuel chapter twenty-one. I'm just going to be handling uh, chapter twenty-one, and then into verse twenty, or into chapter twenty-two. Last week we looked at the covenant relationship between David and Jonathan. We saw that the covenant relationship provided David with a number of things. Uncertainty, and, or I'm sorry, certainty in uncertain times. We saw how it reflected uncommon loyalty at a time where David desperately needed that. We saw that it came at a cost um, to Jonathan specifically. And then we saw that it provided David with a measure of peace at a time where there wasn't a whole lot of peace in his life. And I find it interesting. I love the way that you know, when we when we read through the scriptures... Um, we oftentimes sort of miss the nuances. You know, authors do things in a certain way, and they use certain language, and they arrange things in a certain way. And oftentimes, we just sort of read through it, and we sort of miss that. But I don't think it's any um, mistake that the author is going to follow up this discussion last week, and especially the very end of our passage last week, where um, Jonathan mentioned David, or to David, the peace that would always exist between them, because all of a sudden now today... We're going to look at five different instances where there wasn't a whole lot of peace. And so we find that the author sort of, um, I think, set us up, if you will, about peace will exist even when it doesn't look like peace will exist. You know, we think about the environment that we're in and the peace that we have with our Lord, even though the world around us doesn't always have a whole lot of peace. Now, we get numb to that as we sort of look around. Everything looks really good. But um, we all, you know, Steve mentioned the challenges that he faced today. And as, as simple as those are, we all face those kind of things. But each one of these things we're going to look at today um, has two things in common. One is there's a certain amount of desperation. And then the second is God's provision and care through all of that. You know, it's interesting um, the way that God kind of arranges things. The passages that we're going to look at today, um, we've talked about how there's some themes that go through 1 Samuel, and one of those is God's provision for his people. And another way that we can think about that is the way that God simply cares for us. He's always been a God who cares for his people. And um, that can be found in a variety of ways. Obviously, in our salvation, in our spiritual needs that we have, um, but often do we think about the little ways that God kind of provides for us. I think about, you know, Amy and I have had some challenges over the course of the last uh, week or so here. Um... I was coming off a period of time where I was working 50 to 60 hours a week and just feeling like I was getting crushed, and so things weren't getting done around the house. Amy was feeling overwhelmed. You know, yard work in the you know the back wasn't getting done. We had mulch bags sitting out for I don't know how long, and um, Mr. Rancifer yesterday, I'm call him out on this, called me the middle of the afternoon and uh, offered to come over because my plan for yesterday was to at least get some new mulch unloaded um, and then maybe do some trimming. And David called the middle of the afternoon and just said, I'm coming over um and we got more done than i expected to get done we got all the trees trimmed and all the mulch put out and and stuff like that you know just one of the ways that god provides one of the awesome things about our church family here i um, know that's not an offer for dave to go do all of your mulch for you i don't think he's you know but um but just another one of the way that god had provided now on top of that um we had some situation um over the course of last week here where our found out our van was not real drivable and so now we had to figure out scramble for all that and um Through just a sequence of some things, we were going to head in one direction, we headed another direction, and God provided just a phenomenal deal on a a new van for us, Um, something we didn't expect. And then even with that, provided a means to get our current van actually fixed and made drivable at no cost. Um, through a garage in, in Delaware that just owed me some favors and kind of took care of some things. And so now it's even possible to either sell that or use it to haul mulch like I did yesterday. But it's interesting, all these things, I'm kind of feeling this morning a little bit like, uh, <laughs> God's provision, you know and just taking care of some things. Now on top of that, Amy's at home with a busted up ankle so she can't drive, she can't stand, she can't cook and clean, so now that's all on me. But what's nice about that is I've seen God kind of work and so my perspective going forward is, okay, we'll get it done. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll figure out the shuttling and all that kind of stuff. And so far, God has provided. And that's the kind of God that he is. So today, as we look at some of these things, that's what I really wanted to see in the text, is that we have this God who just cares for his own people. He just takes care of us. Okay? And as simple as that may be, some silly illustrations like this morning with taking care of some stuff around the house or providing a vehicle or Or whatever. God is just a God who cares. And so the text today that we're going to look at is not going to be real complicated. It's not going to be real deep theologically. If you want, we could probably ask Pastor Steve to maybe come up with some deep theological points that we could draw out of this. But it's really just going to be about watching God care for us. So go ahead and look at um, 1 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to see five different instances. Four of them relate specifically to David. The other one relates to a, a priest but involves David. So the first thing I want to see is that the Lord simply meets David's needs at a very difficult time. Chapter 21, the first nine verses, And David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter And he has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you, in which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread and whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread, if only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered uh, answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord, in order to, be, to have hot bread put in its place when it was taken away. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Daeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, Now is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, Behold, it is wrapped in cloth behind the ephod. And if you take it for yourself, take it. For there is no other excepted here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. So what do we basically find here? Well, David's obviously on the run. He's out in the wilderness with, with his men which makes it very difficult for David to have any kind of income. makes it very difficult for David to provide for his needs and the needs of his men. So he's out running around in the wilderness, and he's hungry. We notice here in the text he also doesn't have any real weapons to defend himself. So he's on the run, and we see that he enters this small little city of Nob, which was um, basically a priestly city. We'll find out a little bit later there were at least 85 priests there. So David ends up there, and he's in desperate need of food. And so he goes to the priests there. And he asks him, what do you have on hand? Just anything that you can spare. And the priest says, there's there's really nothing here. He's likely at the worship center, if you want to call it that. And um, all that exists is what's called the show bread. The bread of the presence, which is the bread that was put before the Lord on a regular basis. And it was an offering. And according to Leviticus, only the priests are able to eat that bread. But in this case, the priest is able to give it to David and makes an exception for David. And so he provides for David's men by doing that. Now, Jesus references this in Matthew chapter 12. He uses it as an example. And clearly in that context, it's not sin. And so the question is, well, what happened there? Well, the the Old Testament law was put in place for God's purposes to, to teach about holiness and sanctification and other things. But it was never meant to be a burden to the people. And so here's a situation where David, God's anointed, comes to the priest and the only food that's available is the bread that was dedicated to God. And the priest recognizing David's need makes an exception, which, at least from our understanding of Jesus' words, wasn't a sin. Jesus used it as an example of when the law could be set aside because it would have been a burden or because it would have provided an undue... um, You know, it would have been... Let's put it this way. It would have been worse for David to starve and uphold the law than the opposite. Do you have another example of that? Do you ever think of a time where maybe Jesus himself violated the law for the good of something else? Do you know of an example? Yeah, Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Yeah. And so there are times where um, we'll call it the black and whites don't always necessarily apply. And it's difficult for us to sort through that, isn't it? You Think about this. is it, you know, um, Is it permissible to lie to defend yourself? If some man comes to your home and wants to know if your young children are at home, is it appropriate to lie and say, No, they're not, to protect your family? Well, obviously there are times where those rules of, Well, don't lie, don't apply. And this is apparently one of those times where God provides for David's means, his nearest, for his needs, by suspending the law. And the priest recognized that. And so the priest actually is able to give David the food that he and his men need. And not only that, but God, in a kind of a unique way here, provides for David's needs for weapons, too. Because David had stored this weapon years earlier in this city, probably without knowing that he would need it at some point. So he's out on the run with absolutely no weapons to defend himself, and God even provides for that, just through some supernatural means of having David, without forethought, store the weapon, at least the shield. Here's what we find in this, just this simple example here, is just one way that God chose to meet David's needs. Now, it required suspending the law, to some degree, to be able to do that. But David had no other means. Um, There wasn't a whole lot of places he could go. You remember, David's being chased by Saul, who has an army of at least 3,000 men pursuing David. The army was much bigger than that, but he had at least 3,000 men that was pursuing Saul. There wasn't a whole lot of places that David could actually go. So it's not like he could just go down to the 7-Eleven on the corner and get food. He had to rely on the goodness and the grace of the people in these cities. And you notice here that it says that this priest was actually trembling when he met David. He had every reason to not help David. Now, we don't know why he was fearful, but in all likelihood, probably because he knew that Saul and his men were after David. And to help David would put his own life in danger. And yet, somehow, God worked in the heart of the priest to convince him, to go ahead and give David what David needed. Now, it's going to come back and haunt him here in a little bit. But so we have these neat little things through the text here that just sort of speak to God's quiet work behind the scenes. There's nothing here that jumps out and says, God gave gave David the food. It's all subtle, sort of behind the scenes. What about another episode? Look at verses uh, 10 through 15 says then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish king of Gath that's a Philistine king Gath was where Goliath was from but the servants of Achish said to him is this not David the king of the land Did they not sing of this one when they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. We'll stop there for a second. So what happens here, and David's going to do this more than once. There's another passage coming up where David does the same thing, where he flees to the land of the Philistines. Now think about that for a minute. There is nowhere David feels he can go within Israel without fearing for his life. So in his mind, the only thing he can do is is escape to the Philistines. Why? Because Saul's not going to pursue him up into the land of the Philistines. You know, Saul will fight the battle when the Philistines come to him, but he's certainly not going to go up into the land of the Philistines to pursue David. You know, how's that going to work out? You know, Saul shows up on King Achish's door knocks on him and says, Hey, yeah, you know me? I'm your enemy. I'm the dude that's been, you know, fighting with you here. I'm just here to get David. Is that okay with you? Oh, welcome. Come on in. No, he's not going to pursue that. And so what we find here is that David, in desperation, flees to the land of the Philistines. They know who he is immediately. David's got a reputation. Not only, they, it's, I find it interesting here that they knew that David was the king of the land. Did you catch that? Well, Saul was the king. But somehow the Philians, Phil, Philistin, Philistines knew that David was the anointed king of Israel. Doesn't say how, but they were aware of that. Interesting how news travels, what God makes known. So they knew he was an important individual. But they were also, to some degree, afraid of him because they knew that he had slain his tens of thousands. So now David's got a problem. He thought he could sneak into Gath without being recognized. Because, remember, he's not the king. They'll know Saul. They won't know David Well, he was wrong. So he sneaks into Gath, and immediately they know who he is. And so now David's got a problem. So David does something rather interesting here. He feigns insanity. If you look at verse 12, it says that David took these words to heart. That basically means he listened to them, he knew the the dangers here, and he greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them, and acted insanely in their hands, and scribbled on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman? Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen? That you have brought this one to act as the madman in my presence. Shall this one come into my house? So basically what David does, he says, you know what, if I just act really nuts, then they realize I'm not somebody to worry about. And so that's what he does. And everything from drooling on his beard. You know, it just you get this picture of David looking like an animal. And he's out there scribbling probably meaningless words on the gate, acting all crazy, and it works because the king of Gath sees him down there at his gates to his palace and he pulls in his servants and he goes, do th- why don't you bring me another madman? i got plenty of madmen running around here. I don't need another one. And immediately realizes that he's no real threat. And so David's life is spared. Now, come on, this is a military commander. He knows that David is the king. The only way that I can describe this is that God was probably working there too. God somehow... Um, allowed this deception to trick this military commander. Now, this King Achish was was not just some simpleton. We see that he actually, um, if I remember right, I'd have to double-check this, but if I remember right, I think he outlives David. So he's the commander of the Philistines for at least another 40 years, because once David becomes king, he reigns for 40 years. So if I remember correctly, I think he outlives David. So he was a... Good military commander he survived. I mean the Philistines were a continued threat and yet this simple ruse seemed to trick him. There's got to be the hand of God there and so we find David again in this desperate desperate I'm sorry desperate situation where he thinks his only solution is to flee to his enemies. as soon as he gets there the jig is up they know who he is they run to the king are you kidding me? this guy's your enemy and yet somehow God works to allow David to deceive this man to spare his life. So again, David was in desperate, desperate straits trying to find refuge. And God actually protects him again. What about a third example? Look at uh, chapter 22. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Dulam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Then he left with the king of Moab or then he left them with the king of Moab and he stayed or they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold that means out in the battle the prophet gad said to david do not stay in the strongholds depart and go to the land of judah so david departed and went into the forest of jeruth so what do we have here another instance here basically what happens is david has to leave he realizes he can't stay there long because I mean how long can you act like a madman right at some point, they'd figure out David was was a threat to them. So David leaves, runs away, flees down to the area of Moab. Now, does that sound familiar? Anybody know? David's got a connection to Moab. Do you remember who is? Was it his great grandmother? Great grandmother? Remember Ruth? Ruth was a Moabite. That might be one reason why David fled. Because what happens is, David's out in the wilderness, and people get wind that he's out there, and his family learns that he's out there, so his family goes to meet him. But not only that, another 400 men, and probably their families, so we're talking probably a good thousand people or more, go out to David, and it says that they're disenfranchised, they're in debt, they've been burdened probably by Saul, and they're desperate as well. So here David is out in the wilderness who can barely care for the needs of him and a small group of the men that are with him. And all of a sudden, a thousand people show up on his doorstep expecting David to protect them and to help them when he can barely do it himself. So now David's thinking about them and he's like, how do I, how do I protect these people? Well, that was in David's heart. And we'll see that in other texts as we move forward. Is David always had this desire to protect those around him. That's that's at the heart of him being a king. And so here he's all of a sudden got himself in this this difficult position of how do I care for my family and all these people that desperately need me? And he thinks, you know what, Moab's close by, and I'm a you know I, I've got Moabite blood, if you will, in me. So I'm going to go and I'm going to appeal to the king, and the king takes him in. And David says, can I leave my family here with you while I go and fight in the stronghold? And the king agrees. And so David's family and all of these people that are with him are also desperate, seeking help, and God provides for them in a very difficult spot. He couldn't go to Israel anywhere because, you know, knowing Saul, Saul likely would have killed his whole family too and all the people that left and went with him. So all these disenfranchised people had no hope in Israel and had to find hope and rescue among the Moabites. And so God provides for them. Now, there's something else kind of interesting here. David had no army. All of a sudden, you get 400 men show up. That became David's army. That's who David now uses to attack some of Israel's enemies in the chapters that are coming up. So God provided not just for the safety and security of his family here. David didn't even ask God for an army, and God provides now an army. Now, these were not skilled men, but boy, they sure can fight. Because when you see some of the in some, uh, passages coming up, David goes back to Gath and um, sort of convinces the king, the same king he thought that he tried to convince him he was nuts, he goes back to him again. And he sort of deceives him into thinking he's going to help that king. So he, the king gives him a city in the south. Of Israel, basically. And David goes out and he attacks all the enemies, all the Canaanites down there with these 400 men. And some of these cities that he attacks are these big fortified cities. And the Lord delivers Israel from their enemies using David and these 400 men. So God not only provided for the safety and security of David's family here to take that burden off of his shoulders, but he provides him with an army to help now fight some of his battles. And that's also a remarkable thing about what we're going to learn about David is, this guy's on the run, and while he's on the run, he's not just running, he's thinking, okay, what can I do for Israel here? And he starts to attack Israel's enemies. He's not been king yet. You think he might want to just go, go away and dig a hole and stay in the hole until God kills Saul, and then he can just pop up and be their king. But David's active the whole time. So while he's fearing for his own life, He's also in the middle of attacking Israel's armies, or, I mean, Israel's enemies. So here we have this great example, too, of God providing even something David didn't ask for, which is the army that he would need. So, again, we find the Lord providing and just simply caring for David here. What about another example? This one doesn't involve David directly. It involves David sort of on a secondary level. Look at uh, chapter 22, starting in verse 20. I'm going to just summarize just briefly what happens here. But when Saul learns that, um, this, that David had gone to the city of Nob, Saul's not happy, obviously. And he ends up going and attacking and, and killing all of the priests in Nob. And part of the way that he does that is he talks to his own men. He basically accuses his own his own men of deceiving him and everything else. And then one one man um, happens to be this shepherd that the text tells us Deog, that happened to be there in Nob. Well, he finally reports to Saul and says, "Yeah, you know what? There's a priest there over there in Nob, and he he kind of helped David, sought the Lord's help for David." And so, basically, the Lord Saul goes and he wipes these people out. If you look at this, look at verse. Um, Verse 11, the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Edithub, and his father's household, the priests who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Edithub. And he answered, here I am, my lord. Saul then said to him, why have you, the son of Jesse, conspired against me, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he would rise up against me, lying in ambush as it is to this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house. Did I just begin to inquire of the Lord for him today? Meaning, I didn't do anything unusual. It's his job. I'm a priest. I inquire of the Lord. Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. Meaning, I didn't know David was planning on attacking you, lying in ambush. The reality of it is, David wasn't. The king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death, because their hand also is with David, and because they know that he is fleeing, and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Daeg. You turn around and attack the priests. And Daeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Wiped out 85 priests. You know what? It doesn't stop there though. And he struck Nob the city of the priests with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and infants, oxen, donkeys, sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. Basically he wiped out the entire city. But one man... One man escaped. But the son of Ahimelech, the son of Atib, named Abithar, escaped and fled after David. Abithar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abithar, I knew on that day when Dea the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. For you are safe with me. This is kind of an interesting one for me. What we basically have here, remember the priesthood was extremely corrupt in Saul's day. We found that out with Eli. Completely Corrupt. So you have this situation here where, in all likelihood, part of the destruction of Nob at the hands of Saul, we probably have to understand and interpret, not just as a wicked, murderous act, but in some respects as judgment against the priests. Much like when God took Israel into the land of the Canaanites, the the killing of of what what some have referred to as the innocents in Canaan weren't, weren't so innocent. They were enemies of the Lord and so the Lord sent Israel in and as a judgmental act against the Canaanites for their worship of Baal and Asherah and their rejection of God according to Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 where they had turned their back on God it was a form of judgment. People on the outside of Christianity will say that's a vengeful, wrathful, disgusting God murdering all those innocent women and children. No, it was an act of judgment. In this particular instance here, there's a contrast that takes place because what happens is all of the priests are wiped out except for one. Now what's interesting about this one priest is he goes on to become David's priest and serves David for all of his life and we see throughout the text he was a faithful priest. In fact, he's the last surviving descendant of Eli. Remember what God said to Eli? His line would be cut off. Well, but there was one that served David faithfully for over 40 years, and God spared his life. In fact, Solomon finally took this man out of the priesthood because when Solomon had become become king, Abiathar, this man, actually supported his brother to be to be king instead of Solomon, and so. Solomon basically takes him out of the priesthood and that ends that prophecy that God had made against Eli that you'll be cut off from the priesthood. It was right there with this guy. But what's interesting again about this guy is he was faithful. So all the other priests were, were killed, likely as God's judgment is the way I'm going to interpret the text. So, nasty act by Saul, but also as a form of judgment with God, but in contrast to this one faithful priest who goes to David Reports what happened, and what does God do for him? God protects him. David tells him outright, right here in the text, "Stay with me, you'll be safe." And David then protects this priest and has him service as priest for the next forty years. And again, the text, the rest of the text, indicates that he was a faithful servant to David. In fact, that's the reason that Saul, or I'm sorry, Solomon gives to Abiathar when he takes him out of the priesthood. Finally, he says, "Because of your kindness and your faithful service to my dad, that's why I'm not going to kill you." Because remember what kings did when there was a threat? They killed him. Well, this man had supported Solomon's brother, another one of David's children, to become king instead of Solomon. But Solomon recognized that he had been faithful to his dad. And so we have this contrast here. And so I look at this and say, God did an amazing thing, some preservation, some protection for Abiathar here, because he was a faithful priest. In the midst of a bunch of unfaithful priests, And so God rescued and delivered him. I want to see something else in the text. Did you notice David's response here? How does David respond to hearing about the killing of not just the priests, but the women and children? This just tells us something about David, and we can't really overlook it in the text. David took responsibility for that. Man, it's all on me. When David was in there, he saw that this man, Deag, happened to be there, and he knew that it was Saul's chief shepherd. And he just boy, I just had this hunch that this guy would go back to Saul and it wasn't going to end well. And so David, because he didn't do something, likely take out Daeg, when he hears about this, he takes it all on his own shoulders. This is on me. This is on me. That's just another example of what made David a great king. Why the Lord said, he's a man after my own heart. He takes responsibility for something that wasn't even his. All David did was go ask for help. And because David went and asked for help, some wicked guy, Saul, destroys all these people. And David's response? Man, it's on me. If I only could have done something, maybe I should have taken out David. Whatever it is, David takes it on his own shoulders. And again, this is at a time where he's fleeing for his life. His response could have been, hey, it ain't on me. Hey, I had to, I had to flee myself. I'm on the run from this dude. He's just a bad dude. But David says, no, it's on me. Again, just makes him an amazing character a man after God's own heart. I'm going to look at one last example here um, of God's provision. It's chapter 23, the first five verses. And they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kayla, and are plundering the threshing floors. That was pretty standard. A lot of times when we think about these these armies of Philistines and all that, actually what was happening in Israel is a lot of the Philistine battles they would have, they would basically go into these innocent little cities and just rob them. Just take their stuff. They're undefended, you know, but they would take their stuff and leave. And so that was happening in, in Israel for years. You know, when God said, drive out the Canaanites... It wasn't just because of the influence of their, their pagan religious practices and whatnot, but it was also because these people would continue to torment Israel. And so you would. You'd have the, these armies of the Philistines would go into these little cities and basically rip them off, take all the grain in the threshing floors and leave them without anything, which means your children and wives and kids, they all, they all starve. And so that's exactly what happened here. David heard about this. That the Philistines had gone into this city and basically raided them, ripped off their stuff, So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Calah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Cala against the ranks of the Philistines? These are these untrained four hundred men, remember? Then David inquired of the Lord once more, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines, and he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Calah. So we have another example here where now David's been rescued and delivered and his needs provided for. Um, you have his family and their needs being provided for and taken care of you've got this priest this faithful priest who is taken care of and provided for by the Lord you have David here um, who now goes into this city Kayla, who is in desperate need they're certainly not going to get help from Saul because Saul in some respects we're going to, we're going to see later on in another passage where because of Saul's pursuit of David the way he did he left parts of Israel undefended He wasn't doing his job as a king. He was there to protect them from the Philistines. But he's not doing his job. He's too busy pursuing David. And so here you have this city, Calah, who desperately needed their king to come and protect them from the Philistines, but he's too concerned about David and his own kingdom that he's not available to do it. And so it's left to some dude who's not even king yet and 400 untrained men who are afraid to go fight the Philistines who were brutal And yet what happens? God uses David and those 400 untrained men to go in and to defeat the Philistines. They actually don't just go to Cala. They go and they go back to the Philistines, to their camp, raid the camp there and take their stuff and take it back to Cala now. Again, the only way we can explain that is that's the work of God. These 400 disenfranchised people could not have fought the Philistine army these people were brutal but yet somehow God did it and so we see this other example and what I find interesting about this whole passage here is again it's it's almost like these little tiny stories that you might go eh just little stories but again it's on the tail of this discussion between Jonathan and David and the fact that David, you'll always find peace. And so then you get into these five little stories where there's desperation, there's need for God to give peace, need need for God to give deliverance and help. The author intended that. And so these aren't just these little tiny stories. that are all cute little stories. I think they're all designed to remind us that God provides, God cares. And it doesn't even have to mention the Lord a whole lot here. It does in this last section. Because we know that that's who's at work in the book because the author has constantly repeated this throughout this work that the Lord provides for his people. And we see that continually throughout the book and again, just in these few stories here. So again, that's one of the major themes that we see in the book and we see it repeated here. We have five, at least five examples of it here. What does that remind us of? You know, I think sometimes... Um, you know whenever we have really big issues i you know, think about you know we bring this up quite often at least i do with walker and you get big issues like that um and, and you know you just you cry out to the lord and you ask him to help you and to take care of you you know but then there's also those other times that are just a little more subtle you know um that maybe we don't ask for help when we probably should and you know it's sort of like um the last couple of months at work with all the extra hours I'm coming home and I'm not somebody who cries usually um I'll cry at a Hallmark commercial (laughs) but a lot of other things I I I don't um have to be pretty severe but yet I found myself over the last couple of months where I literally I I texted Amy a couple of times and I said honey I just want to come home curl up on a ball and ball because I was so stressed out and then I shared with you some of the stuff with my with my boss and um just feeling like I'm getting beat up and hammered and beaten down, you know. Um, And yet, throughout that whole entire process, I've had all these things at work that have taken place in the last few weeks now where God has encouraged me tremendously um, over and over and over with people that I've worked with that have shared stories and examples of the stuff that I've done for them and how much it's helped when I was getting an opposite reaction from my boss and just seeing how God has... Constantly there to encourage and to build up, even at a time like this with with Amy hurting her ankle and stuff like that, and it's just been neat to see God's going to take care of all that, you know. And sometimes I wonder if we just kind of forget that we get all worried and stressed out, and I think we just kind of forget that He's not just the God who handles all the really big stuff when needed. He's just there all the time. If we just look, I'm sure I could probably ask you how many examples do you have of just this last week the little things that you go you know i didn't think about that but that was probably god's hand that was probably god's provision for me That was probably god doing something no matter how big or how small it was sometimes i think we just forget that you know we just think about the big stuff and um, obviously some of these things are pretty big but these are small stories in a big text big book i think about what that means for us when we Put it into perspective. Why is it that we can be assured that God is even concerned with even the little stuff sometimes? Or the small day-to-day things? When we look and we, we go back here quite a bit, but Romans chapter 9, um, God reminds us of the big thing. But listen to this. And we know that God calls us all things to work together for those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called, and these he called, he justified, and these he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Think about that for a second. He's saying, if God took his own son and put him on a cross for us, then what else will he not do for us? He starts with the really big stuff and says, what else won't he do? Obviously, God cares about even the small things. If he was willing to care for the biggest thing, he'll care for the smallest things too. And that's why, you know, we look at somebody like David and we think, wow, you know, God simply provided him with a meal provided protection for his family. This is the guy that's supposed to be the next king. You'd think there are bigger issues to solve, right? He's got Saul chasing him down. He's on, he's on the run. He could have looked at the 400 guys who showed up and said, Guys, I can't help you. I've got my own life to worry about. I'm on the run. God took care of all these, what I'll call little things. Because God is a God who takes care of the big thing. And because he takes care of the big thing, he takes care of everything else along the way.